Hi, everyone. This is NBC10 Boston's question and answer series about the war in Ukraine. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with uh, Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Alec Kotsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for joining us every week. Thank you. So I want to start with the big news for today that Finland and Sweden have officially applied for NATO membership. And we've talked about the significance of that before, but I think it's worth getting into again as this sort of develops um, now that their sort of their ascension process has begun. So I wanted to just start by talking a little bit about what this means both for the war in Ukraine and, and also for you know the, the global implications of this um, and I guess how this process, how long this process will take it and what we can expect uh, in the coming weeks. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting and I think if anything, it, it, it's further evidence of uh, how bad things are going for Vladimir Putin really and, and how, you know, this this whole the invasion of Ukraine is completely working out exactly the way Putin didn't want to. And it's managed to accomplish exactly the opposite of what he was what he's trying to achieve, which was to stop NATO expansion. And I think it's particularly troublesome for from the Russian perspective, Vladimir Putin in particular. Uh, I think the case of, of Finland is perhaps more problematic because obviously Finland shares an 800-mile border with, with Russia. But not only that, I think historically, certainly since the end of the Second World War and throughout the Cold War, Finland was seen from the Soviet perspective and from the Russian perspective as, as an example of a country that managed to sort of navigate this relationship between the East and the West. And it was put as an example by the Soviet Union as, as, a, as a country that had cordial relationship with the Soviet Union and something that Russia wanted to replicate. And, and, and historically as well, Finland has been very careful in managing this relationship between the two sides, as it were. And it's sort of almost part of the national identity to some extent of, of the Finnish people. And something ha similar happens in Sweden, who historically has seen themselves as, as neutral and managing to navigate these, these distinctions and this sort of the, the, the great divide that existed during the Cold War and after the Cold War as well, holding coordinated relationships with the Kremlin. Uh, so I think this is a particular blow to, to Vladimir Putin because he's basically losing... Certainly not an ally, because I don't think Finland has never been an ally. And, and Finland, it's important to remember that, particularly Finland, Finland has pretty much been a member of NATO in all but name uh, since 1996. So this has basically opened the opportunity for Finland uh, to join NATO and avoid some of the fallbacks and some of the issues. Why? Because Russia is pretty much distracted by what's going on in Ukraine. Russia has shown itself to be a little bit in a weakened position. So all of this is playing within in, in, the, in favor of Finland's hands. Uh, and I think it's also important to understand for both Finland and Sweden how important of a domestic shift in policy this is. Uh, two governments, two social democratic governments that historically have been very much against NATO. Uh, Sweden has traditionally seen itself as a sort of um, benign force in the world, in, a, a neutral force in the world in, in terms of human rights and humanitarian terms. Uh, so it's a really important policy shift for for both Finland and Sweden, and arguably as well, and we'll have to wait and see, these may represent some shifting in NATO as well, because they're going to have two, to say it in some way, two less hawkish countries in some sense, right? Two countries that are going to be wanting to focus more on humanitarian intervention, human rights missions, that sort of thing. So these will also change the internal composition of NATO uh, and the really the workings of NATO and the objective of NATO. So I think it's very, very interesting. But what it means for Ukraine is, again, I think it just further shows the 
the weakening of, of Russia and, and of Vladimir Putin and the lack of influence that Vladimir Putin is willing to exert to the point that now um, I think the noises we're hearing from the Kremlin is they're, they're taking this as a fait accompli and, you know, they're trying to make it sound like it's no big deal, that it's, that it's okay, that nothing's going to change. Because I think at the end of the day, they know there's really nothing they can do. Uh, and, and if there was nothing they could do before, certainly not now. Uh, and I think the war in Ukraine is putting that in evidence to a great extent. Maya? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this this shift really shows that neutrality is not enough. I mean, these two countries have historically embraced a kind of neutral standing as part of their security strategy. They thought it would guarantee some security by staying out of the fray, out of military alliances. But the stakes are just are too high right now with Russia's behavior and this war right on the edge of, of EU um, territory and NATO territory. So I think that, you know, neutrality just doesn't cut it anymore. And in a way, all of this time, looking back on it, um, these two countries have abdicated part of their foreign policy, especially Finland, right? And so I think it's just it's insufficient for them to sort of try to maintain this as it is, um, you know, Finland and Sweden have actually fully participated in EU's common security and defense policy. So they have been involved. But as Pablo alluded to, these were all humanitarian operations. So it was easier for these two countries to to be part of that with the major shift in public opinion in both countries, there's quite a bit of this emphasis on joining NATO for the sake of of being secure. And I think that's part of it, that being in NATO means you you gain Article 5. So you're protected by the whole group of, of member states of NATO. Uh, but it, it's also more than that to me. I think it's also about showing the strength of Western values in the face of what Russia is trying to do to dismantle liberal international values. And uh, so it's also incredibly important politically, um, geographically, with doubling of, of the border between NATO countries um, and Russia. That is significant uh, geographically, symbolically, in terms of values and, as well, as I mentioned. So I think all of this is, is important for many reasons. And I think also in terms of implications for NATO in, in the future, just kind of building on what Pablo said, I would also add um, it strengthens the European pillar within NATO. So there's often been a kind of sense that the U.S. dominates NATO. I think it will still be the most powerful actor, but it does mean that EU member states are overwhelmingly the majority there. And if they're able to speak with one voice and have most of the countries on board in both the EU and NATO, it signals a stronger role for the EU within NATO as well. Great, Ola. Um, I think it has several symbolic meanings. I don't think that in practical terms right now, it, it you know it's gonna change anything other than hardening of the lines and of the division between kind of the democratic Western states and kind of the more autocratic towards the East of Russia and China and so on. Uh, of course, the irony of all of this, as Pablo has pointed out, is that uh, while Putin has been declaring, and as we know, that was just a red herring, as we discussed it before, that you know the main uh, objective for them is to prevent NATO moving closer to Russia's borders. Now, basically, the NATO is going to be in the suburbs of St. Petersburg, because that's how close Finland is, in fact, to Russia. 
if we look on the map, you know, NATO is right there and can honestly much easier now reach uh, Russian territory and key Russian cities. Um, so once again, I, I think it's, it proves that, you know, it's not really about NATO. Uh, we have seen the declarations made by Russian officials, including the foreign minister Lavrov and, and others saying that, well, uh, Sweden and, and Finland joining NATO is not a problem. And then explaining that by saying that, well, because supposedly Russia does not have territorial disputes with those countries. But really, the, the case, what is happening here is that, um, you know, Finland has finally uh, overcame, overcome that would be what is called Finlandization, right? Uh, a limit on their own sovereignty. Uh, so for the first time, Finland is truly making their own decisions about their own uh, safety and their own security. And so certainly that also once again points the way, shows the way for Ukraine in the future. Uh, maybe not right now, but in the future, that's probably what Ukraine is going to do as well. Um, so from those from those perspectives, I think it's an important, um, you know, it's an important step. And also, of course, once again, symbolically, the importance is to show that Europe is united, NATO is united, and so on. So we know that, of course, Turkey has um, uh, already uh, raised concerns and said that, you know, they would be vetoing the ascendance of the two states to, to the NATO if certain conditions are not met, which are political um, to, to the large extent. So that's something that we would need to kind of further see how that develops. I assume that the pressure on Turkey will be huge um, and really uh, kind of the, um, the interest behind the scenes, uh, which are always or not always, but often about equipment and money. Uh, will probably decide the outcome here. So in terms of equipment, it's the uh, it's the return of the deal with F-35s for Turkey with the United States, which were, as we know, which was put on ice after Turkey acquired the S-400 defense systems, uh, anti-aircraft systems from Russia. Um, and there were concerns there about, you know, the technology, the Western technology, F-35 technology being leaked to the Russians because they will have to service those systems and train the Turkish uh, operators. Uh, and then, of course, the kind of political recognition of the Kurdish uh, parties and the Kurdish movement as a terrorist movement, not just in Turkey, but also in other countries. And so, as we know, certain uh, member states of NATO have been providing uh, military support to the Kurds, including the United States has been, has been doing that. Um, and so it will be, I think, politically very difficult uh, position for for many of the NATO states to assume, including for with for Sweden and and Finland. And finally, the last thing is the in general the reduction of neutrality, uh, and not just for Finland and and Sweden, but also for states such as Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland already reduced some of its kind of stance stances on neutrality in terms of participation in sanctions, embargoes, and other and other kind of political things. Uh, so this may continue even further. We don't know if militarily, but definitely in terms of cooperation on various levels. Do you, just to continue on what you were just saying about Turkey, do you think that, Oled, that um, that will be a major roadblock for, for Finland and Sweden being uh, accepted to, to NATO? How do you see that playing out? Um, so right now it's a roadblock. That's for sure. That's already the case. Um, so we cannot we cannot ignore that. Uh, but um, I think that again, 
behind the scenes negotiations are probably going to solve this. I don't think that the Turks, the, 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 Tur the Erdogan, who is the real driver here, right, the authoritarian ruler of Turkey, uh, will get the the political recognition of the uh, of the Kurds as terrorists, um, not just in Turkey that's important, but also outside of Turkey, so in Syria and in other in other territories. Uh, but I think that possibly the uh, you know some deal can be reached on the military equipment for Turkey that they are really interested in. So you mentioned that I think you mentioned that other other countries, including the United States, are have also supported the Kurdish uh, groups. Okay. So yes. what, what is this really about then? Is, is it really about, is it really about that for Turkey or is it about something else? It's about, it's about the political ambitions of Erdogan personally. That's, you know, that's basically it because Tur so Kurds are a large minority in, in Turkey uh, and they have, they have striven for their own independent state for decades and centuries. And so uh, that's what Turkey has tried to prevent in Syria and in Iraq, as we know. Um, and so, kind of the um, uh, you know the the kind of the movement of Kurds in in Turkey has often uh, you know uh, you know they, they have often used the, the means of violence for achieving their goals, which is autonomy, you know, on, on some level. And so, of course, as a as an authoritarian ruler for Erdogan, it is incredibly incredibly important. Uh, to project strength uh, and to project, you know, that he is, you know, that he has this kind of sway in both in Turkey, but also internationally, if he were able to achieve something here. Uh, of course, um, uh, the United States, in, in a way, let down the Kurds when they pulled out of uh, of Iraq. And, you know, we know about kind of, uh, kind of the Syrian situation is also very difficult. Um, and Kurds have proven to be very effective on the ground as as fighters, and so there is a lot. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, resistance to labeling all of them as terrorists, even though, you know, if we look at their kind of makeup, their ideology that many Kurdish groups uh, pursue and the means that they that they use to achieve their their goals, you know, perhaps they would fit that kind of uh, theoretical uh, definition. Maya, Pablo, do either of you have anything to add on on, on all on how Turkey fits into all of this? Um, I, I I agree with all like in, in in many things, and I think it's it's definitely a political stance uh, from from Turkey here, and they're looking for political gains, um, and also they're perhaps trying to again another country that has been trying to play this line between the West and Russia to some extent. So I don't think Erdogan wants to look particular to accommodating the nation expansion towards Russia. So that certainly plays a part. Uh, but also, I think we have to look a lot at the domestic composition of countries like Sweden. Sweden has a, a, a important uh, Kurdish minority within within its borders, so it's, it's a very uh, important constituency, particularly for a social democratic party in Sweden. So I, I don't see them really there's political considerations there. So I don't see Sweden in particular a label in the whole of the PKK, the, the Kurdish uh, movement, as, as a terrorist organization. Will be very counterproductive, uh, and similar as well. I think. Um, in the case of Finland, for instance, Finland has an important Russian minority there as well. It's, it's, a, it's the largest minority in Finland. But it's also going to be very important how Vladimir Putin tries to play that minority within Finland. Uh, but in, 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 the, in the case of Turkey, I think this is a stumbling block for sure, but I think it's something that will be negotiated, and I don't think Turkey is going to want to stand in the way. Because at the end of the day, when Turkey has to choose between the West and Russia, it's always going to choose the West, right? So 
is not going to be the one stumbling block. It's not going to be the one country stopping NATO expansion. I don't see that happening. There's going to have to be some concessions for sure. I don't think Sweden is ever going to name the whole of the Kurdish organization a terrorist organization, but there's going to be some sort of negotiation and some sort of concession that Turkey can 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 also portray as, a, as some sort of a winner, some sort of a concession that it can say to its domestic audience, right? That Erdogan can sell to his domestic audience, but also can sell to Russia and say, we really try, but we couldn't, we couldn't hold on. Maya, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, just briefly, I think this is just what illiberal leaders do in these situations, right? They try to take advantage of it so they can gain some political capital. Um, we're seeing it with Hungary in the EU with the sixth round of sanctions and so Turkey with NATO. Ultimately, it will be overcome. And, you know, it is important to pay attention to the demands, even though it's it's obviously just, you know, kind of political wrangling, um, because this is how we show that democracies work, that you know, negotiation and peaceful deliberation and finding compromise is the way forward. So, um, you know, the the way that the Western countries deal with Turkey in this situation, I think, can be illustrative to sort of the success of these institutions. Okay, great. And, and I want to just switch gears to talk a little bit about the Azovstal steel plant, which is in the uh, southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. And we haven't spent a lot of time in the series talking about it, but I think it's important that we spend some time talking about it now. Um, for about three months, uh, soldiers and civilians were living there with very little food, water, heat, medicine, all the necessities is sort of the last holdout of the city. And at this point, it, it, it seems like it appears like it's a, it's on the verge of falling to Russia. You know, more than 260 Ukrainian troops are being evacuated, um, and Russia is calling it a mass surrender. But you're also there. There is a different rhetoric coming from Ukrainians on this uh, battle, in that it's a symbolic victory, and and that they've sort of carried out their mission there. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why this battle is significant both sort of logistically and tactically strategically for the war but also uh, symbolically for for the people of ukraine Oleg, do you want to start with that sure um it's a it's a, a i think emotionally it's a very difficult subject for ukraine um as you may know the um, kind of the uh, the province center of the donetsk uh, oblast uh, has has relocated in the wake of the uh, kind of the Russian control of the parts of the Donetsk Oblast in Ukraine since 2014 has relocated to Mariupol, and so basically all the administrative offices and you know a lot of the uh, kind of the clerks and everything the entire administration moved to Mariupol, and the Russian forces and the Russian spon sponsored separatist forces have been trying to take that city for all of these eight years of war. And uh, at times they had they had succeeded in taking over certain suburbs of the city. They have shelled the city. There were even tanks, you know, Russian tanks in the city, and so on. And Ukrainians have been able to repel those attacks for eight years. Um, the main reason for the strategic importance of Mariupol is that it blocks that that corridor, that land corridor, from the Russian occupied territory of Ukraine to the Crimea. And so with the fall of Mariupol, so, not, so Azov, Azov steel plant is kind of the last, there was the last holdout in Mariupol. Now that it has fallen, Mariupol has essentially fallen into the Russian hands. 
and they have effectively achieved that land corridor from uh, Russian-held territories to the Crimea. The reason for this importance is that uh, logistically, it is very difficult to transfer pretty much anything from uh, the kind of the Russian mainland to the Crimea, you know, by sea. The uh, the um, the Azov Sea and the Black Sea are very choppy, very difficult to navigate in the winter. Um, and of course, energy in terms of energy, uh, water, and and all the other supplies that the uh, the peninsula, the Crimean Peninsula, does need on a regular basis because it doesn't have enough of those resources on its own. Um, you know, um, necessitate connection to the to land. That was also the main reason why Crimea was transferred in 1956 to Ukraine uh, during the Soviet times, simply because Ukraine was basically subsidizing it already. And, you know, the kind of the main investment and development for Crimea came from Ukraine in those times, too. Um, and so now that Mariupol has fallen, of course, it has a very kind of very you know important strategic meaning uh, for Russia and for Ukraine. It's for Ukrainians. It's very painful precisely for the for the reasons that so many people died defending that city. Uh, it is highly symbolic also in the sense that, you know, that whole area and that region uh, was largely oriented towards Russia culturally, economically, uh, linguistically. You know, most people are historically Russian-speaking following the, the Russification of the Eastern Ukraine by the Stalin regime uh, and then by the consecutive Soviet regimes. And so the fact that the treaty is basically raised to the ground uh, you know, which is the Russian tactic of taking cities, right? <laughs> First you destroy it and then you quote-unquote take it, um, you know, and um, the fall of the uh, of the Azov uh, steel plant, uh, you know, symbolically is a victory for Russia. Uh, for Ukraine, however, I think it's, it, it, you know, the kind of the, the way that the emphasis has been put by the Ukrainian authorities, I think very important. And once again, it signifies that important turn that Ukraine has undergone in the last 30 years and which Russia has not, namely uh, a redirection of, of the power of the government towards the individual and the value of human life. Uh, the, kind of the main message that the Ukrainian authorities have been projecting is that we need to save human lives there because they have done a very important job for us. They have basically held the Russian forces for three months, concentrated on that, on that completely encircled city with you know the kind of the balance of forces uh, outnumbering you know Ukrainian forces uh, three to one and sometimes six to one, um, and yet they were able to effectively hold them and prevented the taking of other cities, so Zaporizhia to the north, Kharkiv, right, and so on. And so in in that sense, and of course it bought time for Ukrainians to receive strategic key uh, equipment from the West, um, and so from that perspective. Uh, all of those soldiers are heroes, and for them, for that perspective, the Ukrainian government, I think, is putting the right emphasis on this, saying that, you know, there was there's nothing to protect there anymore. There's still thousands of people who are, you know, like regular residents of Mariupol who are staying uh, in bunkers in, in in basements, who have survived despite everything, you know. Um, but otherwise, there's there's nothing that you can really hold there because the city has been basically destroyed completely. Um, and so, of course, the other question that is important here that we need to acknowledge is that some members of, of the units, because there are three different units that were combined at the steel uh, plant, um, some members of them belong to the so-called Azov Battalion, 
which started out as a volunteer battalion in 2014, comprised mainly of uh, ultra or people with ultra-right ideology. Uh, so that's not the official ideology of the state, but it's not the official ideology of the army. In every country, as we know, there are people who pursue right or left ideology, ultra-right or ultra-left. But in Ukraine, that's not a definitive ideology, as we see from the elections, as we see who the president is, we see who the political powers, you know, no one from with ultra-right ideology has any kind of political power in Ukraine. Um, and so, of course, for Russia, they will try to emphasize those things already. Uh, several members of the Russian Duma have called for, um, you know, um, physical evaluation of those members in search for tattoos that would be, uh, you know, exhibited certain symbols and so on. And so, of course, they will try to uh, use that to their advantage to prove the, the point of the so-called, you know, Nazi uh, people in Ukraine. But once again, we need to remember that, you know, the emphasis here is not on, you know, on how prevalent this ideology is in Ukraine. Maya, Pablo, anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Oleg covered all of the important details here. I, I would just add that even though it might look right now as a, a kind of win for the Russians in that they're so, supposedly, you know, completing this land bridge to Crimea, and of course, it's it is a, a horrible tragedy for the people of Ukraine for this city to be destroyed and all of the lives lost. But at the same time, there are actual discussions with Ukrainians and Western powers about the possibility of taking Crimea back, whether that should be on the table as a goal for the Ukrainian army. Um, so I think this is telling in terms of you know overall where does Russia stand in all of this? It might have this you know, short-term land bridge to Crimea, but it might stand to lose Crimea itself. I mean, this is still very much open in terms of what the outcome would be. But the fact that there are discussions, Western countries actually don't agree on whether um, Crimea should be left as it has been since 2014 in Russian hands, or whether um, the Ukrainians should really just go for it because of the victory so far. Um, and so we see major EU powers, France and Germany, saying let's let's go for this immediate uh, ceasefire and end the war quickly. Um, and perhaps the US and UK a little bit more on the side of why not just take back Crimea, considering all of the, the wins um, so far and really, really um, sort of signal unequivocally that Russia has lost and this whole thing was a, a really major miscalculation. Pablo? Yeah, just very briefly, again, I would agree with Oleg and Maya, and I think we, we need to bear in mind that it's not just about the, the immediate military objective, it's just about, it's also about the resources that you invest in that particular objective, and I think it's quite telling that uh, the Ukrainian forces, with such a small number, right, managed to drain so many resources from, from the Russian army, and that's what's really important, because again, war, this type of war in particular, comes down to resources, and who ends up having greater resources, and I think as we mentioned before, now it looks like Ukraine is pretty much enjoying a, 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 an endless amount of resources back in, backed by the, by the West, right? So it's very, very telling that even if Russia did manage to take the city and managed to, to connect this land corridor, taking it is one thing, holding it is a completely different story. And holding this, this territory is going to take more and more resources from Russia. And I think we've read reports, and I've seen reports that apparently a third of the of the of the troops have already been lost and a third of the resources, land resources that Russia invested into this invasion 
have already been lost. So it's a huge drain of resources. And again, there is a there is a clock ticking for 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 Russia for Vladimir Putin to end the war. And and I don't think by any shape or form this land corridor is is, is secure. And and I think it's going to take them a lot of time and a lot of resources to to maintain this territory. So yeah, I, I would think uh, this is a victory, a temporary victory, if you wish, a short term victory. But it, there's a lot. There's still some way to go and to see how things will, will shape up. And, and just to, to, to raise Oleg's point as well about the Azov Battalion and stuff, I think that is really what is going to be what Vladimir Putin might want to sell as, as a victory and, and as a justification for the invasion. And say, so you see, we have these neo-Nazi forces, but as Oleg rightly pointed out, you find these sort of elements in any single military, in any single country in the world, right? I mean, there's no military in the world that is completely free of nationalist rhetoric for for pretty much obvious reasons, right? So, uh, but I think it's dangerous that Vladimir Putin is going to try to spin it and sell it as a defeat of of Nazism or, or whatever crazy thing he decides to say this week. Right, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I have appreciated your input on the latest developments and look forward to hearing more from you guys uh, as things progress next week. Thank you so much. Thank you.